0: Hello and welcome. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Shiloh Logan. We started Latter-day Contemplation to largely explore and document our journey of study and faith as we seek to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in anything that we're going to be talking about, but what we do have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to live a life of peace for ourselves, our families, and our community. We love that you are here, and we hope that you find value in this discussion to enhance and strengthen your own discipleship of Jesus Christ. Okay, Shiloh, we're back. It's uh, episode four of Latter-day Contemplation, and uh, you and I discussed a little bit over the past week, and uh, we're ready to discuss our, our new topic, but I let you choose this last one.
1: Yeah, so it's been something that's been on my mind for a while, and I've been thinking about what I call the epistemology of revelation. And that's a lot of really fancy word for just how do we know God? How do we know when we come into relationship with God? How do we know that it's God talking? And so that kind of created the question that I wanted to ask today is, well, how do you experience God? And so I thought that might be a fun thing to discuss.
0: You mentioned to me one of the reasons why this has been on your mind over the last few years is that as a seminary teacher, this is a question you come across a lot from your students.
1: Yeah, it is. In fact, the number one question that I, I was asked as a seminary teacher is how do I know when the spirit is the spirit versus my own voice or yeah. or or something else? And I've thought about that a lot. And I, I, you know, I have, you know, a lot, there's a lot of answers, there's a lot of good answers. There's a whole host of information out there about it. But as I've been thinking about it, one of the things that I've I've thought is that I I think it's actually a bad question. I think it actually promotes a dichotomy and it leads us to an answer that gets us to exclude a whole host of other questions and ways of looking at things that have at least, once I stopped asking that question and have kind of backed up, a lot of other things have opened up for me.
0: Yeah. And for me, it's about reframing the question too. And so keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's about reframing, right?
1: Yeah, it's about reframing the question and to see the question kind of from a different perspective and and our relationship to it. But in short, what I've come to is in my own personal discipleship is I've realized, just put, throwing it right out there, that a lot of the times that I think I'm feeling the Spirit or I'm, I'm having an experience with the Spirit, because at, f- from the church culture and from the way we talk about it, you know, from having the gift of the Holy Ghost and having that constant companionship there, we typically think of the Holy Ghost and of and as God as this outside separate entity that is always there and simply just tells us what we need to know when we need to know it. And so our job is simply to tune into the frequency so that we can be told what to do when we need to do it. And it can testify and, and show us and, and help us along things and bring us comfort. But it's always this entity that's outside of ourselves telling us what we need to know. And I, I started thinking about that for a while and it was, it was never problematic for me to think about it in these terms But over time, I started to wonder, like, is this really the best way to think about this? And so I started to kind of reframe and to reformat how I was looking at it and see it from a different perspective. And what I came to is that, you know, you and I were talking and this has happened as a parent, you know, I'd send my kids out to go do a job, for instance. And when I send my kids out to go do a job, I'm... they will turn. They will go out there and they will do it. And if I micromanage them, and if I'm there right there with them the whole time telling them, you do it this way, you do it this way, nope, you're, you're doing it wrong, do it this way, you know, and then encourage them when they're doing it the right way. They never really learn critical thinking skills of going out and actually tackling hard projects and working through it themselves. Um, you know, I might help a little bit at the get-go, but largely I, I try to turn the whole project over to them so that they can go out and figure out how to do it themselves. And it's terribly frustrating for them. They usually end up really frustrated at some point, as do I sometimes. And I've noticed, though, that the consequence of doing that that way is they grow with confidence in and of themselves that all I have to do is say, hey, why don't you go out to do this? And then they can go out and start to problem solve themselves and they don't need me there very often. Which brings me back to the point of Revelation is that I've often looked at the Holy Ghost kind of like the parent telling me, the child, exactly how to do everything. If I need a question, I go to God I get an answer from the Holy Ghost. Whereas I think what's going on now is that as we learn to become like our heavenly parents, as we learn to become like God, that we're literally transforming the inner self And we're, and we're becoming a type of urim and thummim in and of ourselves. That we become the receptacle for truth and that that comes and that the Holy Ghost becomes a witness, kind of, kind of like a cheerleader, (laughs) as it were. I'm sure there's a better word to explain it. But as we begin to come to these answers, that the Holy Ghost is there saying, yes, there you go. Because I love questions and I love finding questions. That just simply, almost by asking the right question, truth just, and, and the way things are, just open up in front of you. And, and it's really fascinating how a really good, powerful question can do that. Um, it almost gives the answer by saying it. And I know there's been times when I've had questions, and I've gone to God with questions before, where it, it's like, they're they're bad questions. And I really think there are bad questions. I just don't think God cares if it's a bad question. But there's questions I've asked where I've gone to God and I, you know what? I don't know if it's really gone above the ceiling. It just kind of ends as soon as it begins. And then there's times really where I have a question and it's like, I can feel that question go all the way to the throne of God. And the Holy. I, I'm sitting down there and the Holy Ghost is sitting next to me. And it's, and it's like, I, I it's like, I, I'm talking, to, I'm talking to Heavenly Father, but I can feel the Holy Ghost. I'm like, Hey, that was a good question. And the Holy Ghost is like, yeah, that was a really good question. Good job. I'm like, I know, right? And then it's exciting because now it's it's learning to take responsibility for all the faculties that God has given me to be able to work through these problems and to work through these things myself and always have that companion there if I need it to be able to comfort and to, you know, we guide, but the guidance there becomes more secondary to my own processing and coming forward if that makes sense.
0: So uh, what I hear a lot is when when people describe how God speaks to them or how they experience God, a lot of times it, it conforms with whatever their preconceived ideas were of what is right or what is wrong in terms of a direction they should go. So they might be praying for direction as it relates to some certain aspect of their life, and they they may have a subconscious bias as to which way they think this ought to go, and the times when I, I think most people feel the spirit is when they get that warm, fuzzy that, yeah, you were thinking right about this, you know, and the rare times when it was like the exact opposite of what they thought it would be, there might even be a subconscious desire for it to be the opposite. And I'm not saying this is the case all the time, but I think sub uh, subconscious uh, bias is really built pretty heavy into how we think we experience God or the Holy Spirit, as it were. And I think a perfect example of that is is the question itself: How do you experience God? Because you know, in the in the Mormon kind of traditional dogmatic uh, doctrinal way of thinking about God as an anthropomorphic male human being that is, uh, you know, just moved beyond it, uh, what we are now to a state of perfection, but he's still a being, flesh and bones, all that stuff, right? And and so when we ask a question like how do you experience God, it uh, presupposes some different idea about Him. Uh, for instance, you know if we were sitting down uh, talking to our neighbor Judy or Tom, I don't know that we would ask someone would ask us the question how do you experience Judy or Tom. They would say what do you think of Judy or Tom or how do you relate to Judy or Tom. And, and so I think just sometimes the way we even ask questions reveals some of our thoughts and ideas about, um, how we experience or relate to God. And a lot is, uh, a lot of truth can be gleaned out of the good question, as you say. If you ask the question in different ways, a lot of times you just get a, a different answer by nature of the question itself. It causes you to think differently. And that, that, to me, is part of the emptying process. We talked in a previous episode about uh, Meister Eckhart's idea about emptying and that it's necessary not only for us to uh, empty ourselves of our own ego, but all of the side effects or um, consequences of you know, egoistic thinking, one of them being um, having preconceived notions about what God is, who he is the limits of God or lack thereof, just all those notions. And when we put those aside and ask the questions in different ways, sometimes it reveals different aspects of the character, or we might relate to God in a different way. And so I I second the notion that the importance of questions is paramount, and especially when it is such a big question like, how do you relate to or experience God? Yeah, I love how you framed that with how
1: questions themselves often presuppose, a whole world of things and assumptions that we don't even realize. And so those questions come with a lot of baggage. And it really does take a lot of emptying of getting rid of a lot of our preconceived notions I've noticed in my own life to be able to start to ask questions that come from a different place than my own ego, as it were. And that's where I think it's really fantastic, this idea of allowing ourselves to become our own Urim and Thummim, because in, a, in one sense, that can only happen when the ego has gone away. When the ego, the superego, all of our things that we think we know we know and what we know we don't know, and we simply allow ourselves to be in, into connection and a receptacle for things that are unknown. You know, We don't even know that we don't even know, and that's when, in my experience, the most pure truths and the most pure experiences that I've had with God have happened is when I've been allowed that to happen. And then what comes from that and what's present from that has been something that is above and beyond anything that I've got a pretty good idea about how I process information and about how I think about things. But then there's a few times Riley, where I will, I will have this experience where I'm like, wow, where did that come from? because it's like that has nothing to do with what I how I do things like how I process information or how I come to things and it's like this inspiration or this revelation comes and it is so extraordinary out of the realm of how I even process things when it just lands on my lap and when I take that experience back to its foundation and I realize that didn't come from anything I was worthy of in and of myself it's not like I qualified for that it was just, more of like I surrendered who and what I thought I was and it had allowed and it created this space for God to be able to fill that up with something that I couldn't have comprehended before.
0: So you're talking about one other aspect of the question. I I, th- I really think it's important to almost like microanalyze this question because it's such a big question. How do you experience God? There's there's two ways to look at that question. How do you experience God? Meaning, what are the effects of of your experiential um well, of your experience with God and then how do you experience God meaning how do you go about it what's the process what are the steps and you know one of the things we talked about a lot is obviously emptying and releasing and letting go of of thoughts preconceived ideas notions teachings dogmas all that stuff And letting God be an agent unto himself, just like we are agents unto ourselves. And when he is allowed within us to be an agent or work within us without our uh, coercion or whatever, trying to get in the way of things, then he reveals himself in a purer way. And so the how is is important to look at from both perspectives. So is there a method to it? In addition to just a description of what happens as a result of the experience, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I like that. I like that. T- yeah, talk more about that.
0: Yeah. So on the on the in the first sense, when you're asking the how, like how is it done? You know, a lot of times we can get caught in a trap of of like taking the old method of doing things, which is a very transactional, step by step, hierarchical, climbing a ladder to get to a another uh, height of righteousness or or communion or whatever we can take that same model even though we say we might be emptying we might be just applying a different model or the same model on a different uh, approach okay so that might sound a little confusing but I guess what I'm getting at there is for instance um, one of the contemplative tools that is used traditionally is called centering prayer centering prayer is a Thomas Keating thing it's it's been used by several uh, Catholic theologians, or even non non Catholic theologians, but centering prayer is a way to get yourself into a receptive state to be able to receive um, feelings, impressions, experiences with God. But there's still a method to it, right? It's not just a pure release, letting go, and whatever happens happens. It's like it's more like, okay, I'm going to focus in on one word or aspect that I and that's it's through that word or aspect that God is going to reveal himself to me so right off the bat even though I'm a proponent of centering prayer I think it's a wonderful tool right off the bat you're drawing a box around the experience somewhat because you've you've um, you've taken the word and made that the the wall or the border around which you're going to frame this conversation or experience And, and so while I think that can be tremendously revealing and I use it myself, I like it a lot. It's not, it's not without method. So it is a how it is a how to, even if we think we're completely trying to let go and release and, um, empty ourselves, we're still employing methods and I don't think they're invalid and I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, decry the use of something like that, that that is a tool for helping you to experience different aspects of God but uh, all I'm trying to point out is that even when we think we're fully releasing or letting go or emptying we're we're quite often still employing some kind of previous model or method for trying to approach God and, and those you know the figurative aspect of looking at that is the Tower of, of Babel Um, we're always trying to build up to the pure experience or the closer experience to God, putting brick upon brick and building wall upon wall until we have all these multiple levels and all of a sudden we're at the top and now we can experience God. And one of the messages of the Sermon on the Mount, despite the fact that they did climb a mountain, one of the messages is that in the present tense, right now, you're experiencing the kingdom of God in your poverty of spirit. You're experiencing comfort in your morning. You're experiencing uh, being filled in your hunger and thirst. So um, again, the question is so important and kind of internalizing how we get about, uh, how we go about doing something is just as important as analyzing the experience itself. So there's two ways to look at that question. Is what I was getting at. Yeah, I just kind of want to sit with
1: that for a little while. That's great stuff.
0: Well, and maybe there's no question there. I guess what I'm I'm saying is, is you know, the the question is really important on the front end, and and there's you you can do it methodically, or you can or you can try to attach or a approach it from a non-methodical standpoint where it's a full poverty or release or letting go, and that's tougher to do than people think because. Our conditioning is such that we think in order to get to a place of poverty, we have to take steps. Maybe, maybe not. Right. I mean, Christ has revealed to us that many of the blessings that he has uh, in store for us, or maybe not even in store, that he has uh, pronounced as being present within us are there. And for us, it's just a matter of recognition.
1: Yeah, I, I I'm thinking right now about Alma 17 when they start talking about the sons of Mosiah and about how they had the spirit of prophecy and revelation because of the fasting and the prayer that they had given to it. You know, more of a Mormon seems to be giving that mythology or the the transactional. They did X, so Y happened, and so that's how you get Y is because they did X. And I think I think there's value there. I think that if we yeah. really go through and that becomes our focus and our intentionality is like how can you go wrong if you're truly intentionally praying and fasting? Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in another way, it's just it's a different way of
0: viewing it. Yeah, it's non-transactional, right? It's it's present. Yeah. It's already present. Yeah, yeah and, to, and, and to there's both ways as, to look at it, and I don't think either of them are wrong. I think they're just different approaches to the same end or no, same I, objective.
1: Yeah. What I really appreciate this conversation is it's an experience that I was talking to my wife about a few weeks ago in that there have been certain experiences that I've had where the standard church experience of just doing it this way and this way and this way have kind of fallen flat for me. And for me, I I don't really talk about it a lot as in detail because it's so nuanced to me that I feel that if I were to say exactly what was going on with me, that it would be more of a stumbling block than anything else. But how they're just things that weren't landing for me. And I started to recognize through just letting go that I was actually experiencing those those same things in a different way. I I guess I'll say this this way. This this is kind of a I know a lot of people have the same thing, and I've talked to a lot of people, but my prayers about like getting down on my knees and like formally saying prayers morning, afternoon, and night has uh, been something that I've struggled with throughout my life. And, you know, to create a, just a very consistent habit for it. And there's been a lot, just because of the culture and everything, about how we talk about it, and that that's like the only way that you can really talk about it. It's good to carry a prayer in your heart we talk about, but, you know, you really need to be doing the formal prayers. And because I haven't had that really consistent mythology or not mytholo- methodology to my prayers, I felt like I've been lackluster, or that I've been, you know, I've, I haven't been climbing the hierarchy of spirituality the way that I needed to, and that caused a lot of like grief and shame, if I'm being honest about it. And once I kind of stepped back from that conversation a little bit, and I started to really try to evaluate how I was communicating with God, I started to recognize that I was exploring. Other really completely different ways of communicating with God in prayer that was different than simply the formal sit down, you know, on your knees, folding your arms, bowing your head, Mm -hmm. kind of prayers. And once I had experienced, I'm like, oh, that's I'm I'm actually communicating and conversing and praying with God in this way. And I have been my entire life, but because there was no language for it, because the culture hadn't ever taught it this particular way. I, I didn't even recognize or even contextualize what I was doing. It was just something else that was just a natural emanation of my own relationship to God. And so I was like, "Oh!" And it's almost like I, how weird as this sounds, it's almost like I had to give myself uh, permission to be able to do this, of like having like uh, some kind of authority there to be like, "Yeah, that's okay. You can do that." And I'm like, "Oh, okay."
0: <laughs> Well, that's because permission doesn't come from the organization. the the you know the the administrative side of things is very methodical. And again, this is not a criticism so much as uh, an explanation of the reason why you felt like you needed permission. Because there are many ways to experience God. I think everyone will agree to that. But not everyone agrees there's multiple ways to get to that experience. And again, that's the that's the subtle difference I'm trying to talk about when you ask that question, one of two ways, how do you experience God? The how do you, you're explaining the experience, fine, everyone understands that part of it, but what not everyone gets is that there's also different how-tos or how-do. And, and so what you are experiencing is a completely different how-to from the traditional on your knees, arms folded, eyes closed in a closet or at your bedside, you know, prayer, what you're experiencing was a new kind of prayer that may have had centuries or millennia, maybe even of tradition outside of our culture. But our culture was, is, I wouldn't say limited, but in the description of what's orthodox, it certainly is.
1: Yes, it's exactly right. And I think that's one of the main reasons why I, when I started to read the contemplatives and I started to read about the mystics and people who have communicated and have been in a relationship with God in a different way, it's not that one is wrong and one is right. It's just that my own personal discipleship was just naturally experiencing God in a different way. And at first there was this disconnect of like, well, why was I never taught this before? And that, you know, that can run away from you really fast if you let it yeah. and can, uh, and can really lead you down feeling like you were deceived or feeling like you were lied to or feeling like you were, you're still being lied to or like, like there's not, you know, there's, there's nothing there talking about this. And why isn't anybody talking me about this kind of part of God until you just, then you, at that point I had to make a choice. I mean, like, I'm either going to let this eat me up or I'm just going to turn to what I've been doing already, where I found joy in sitting with God and by doing that, it's like all of that frustration just left me. You know, it, it took a little bit of time, but that fr- frustration eventually largely just left. And then at that point, I, I, ironically, this is kind of funny, is that I've now, since I've recognized this different way of praying and different way of communing with God, I've gone back now and now actually getting on my knees and folding my arms and foot and bowing my head, those moments have actually become more meaningful. Because there's not, there's not this grief or shame that I'm not doing more of it. It's just another process now of how I can communicate with God. And so it's like I get down on my knees now because I was already communicating with God, you know, a couple hours before in a different way. So it's just a different process and methodology. So now it becomes, it's opened up and become a more thorough part of my discipleship as opposed to something that I'm failing in every day. Now, when I come into it, I come into it with full confidence and vigor and hope and faith. And it's it's a completely different experience of how I come to God that way.
0: So, you know, back in the, I guess it would have been maybe the 70s, um, early 80s at the latest, but there was this episode in church history where George W. Pace, who was a former professor at BYU, was publicly um, teaching about and he wrote a book about having a relationship with Jesus and uh, Bruce R. McConkie. Um, and a lot of this happened kind of behind closed doors. And and then it became kind of public when Bruce R. McConkie came and spoke out against George Pace pretty openly at BYU um, saying, you know, you shouldn't strive for this relationship with, with Jesus Christ, because I think what it does when people take some personal responsibility for their spirituality in that sense, it uh, it reduces the need for them to find communion with God through the church. Not that it can't be found through the church, or should, shouldn't be, but that that's no longer exclusive. And and so I think that's part of the cultural side and and why maybe there's a little guilt or shame associated with doing – with Mormoning a little different maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I know not everyone Mormons like I Mormon, so um, I get that. But but I think that's where some of that comes from, you know, and um, I think we've progressed past that, you know, in a lot of ways. uh, There's a lot more openness to religious experience and spiritual – Uh, growth at a personal level we are responsible for our own salvation as we've been told and so i think we've come a long way in that respect and and that's why maybe it's more comfortable for you now to be able to still express yourself in those new and different ways and and find new relationship uh, methods without uh, necessarily feeling like you're an apostate which is totally unnecessary
1: yeah, I like that a lot because I, I was talking with uh, when I was when I was uh, doing one of the Come Follow Me's with Ben here for the one of the, the the next podcast we have coming out for Come Follow Me. I had expressed a story where I think my church attendance. I guess back up one of the stories in the Book of Mormon that I've been going over quite a bit lately because it's been so impressive to me is the story of Alma in the waters of Mormon, and when. After you know they had left the Noah's court and they left Noah's kingdom, they were kicked out and they've been they were kind of in hiding there at the waters of Mormon. It seems to me that the gospel of Jesus Christ is supposed to be far more organic. That our culture has turned it into a methodology of duty, and and what I mean by that is that I think that my my current belief and how I'm coming to the gospel now is that I think that as we begin to emanate the true humanness of our creation, the telos, as it were. So that word telos is what is translated as perfect in Matthew 5:48 of be therefore perfect, even mm-hmm. as our Father in heaven is perfect. Yeah, to be complete. It is, uh, it, it's the purpose for your existence. It's that thing for which you were created for. It's it's what are you created for and what is the reason why you're here? and to, And to complete that and to be whole from that. And as we do that, I have found that the emanation of that, when we're living true to our humanity, is that we follow what is is basically is the doctrine of Christ, and not just the 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 messages or the teachings of Jesus Christ, but the actual doctrine of. And I'm cutting my my putting my fingers up with uh, with quote marks of Christ, putting Christ in quotes, like the doctrine of what Christ is, and that when we take upon ourselves the name of Christ. What does that mean? And what is, and what is the Christ, what do Christs do? And in doing that, I've noticed that there's this natural emanation of God within us and of our own divinity that comes forward. And I think in a lot of ways, I've recognized that in the waters of Mormon, because I see the way Alma is talking, because baptism hasn't been a thing before. And he comes to the waters and he has this phrase where he says, what have you against being baptized? And I'm like, why did he say that? There must have mm-hmm. been some kind of, uh, there must have been some kind of contention or some kind of questioning going on. Like, why are we going to go get in the water? Why are we going to go get wet? And he's like, well, why not? He's like, we've already wanted to do all of these other things and they've just naturally occurred and come from without, from within to the without. Why wouldn't we want to symbolize this? This is kind of what humans do. And so I've started to see that like church, the church experience you know, as I've studied the early primitive church, is that a lot of their meetings and gatherings were far more organic than what we have. Like, I mean, when I go to church, I go at you know I go at eleven o'clock. I know exactly what time the prayer is going to be, what time the song is going to be. I know when I have to be in the seat before the sacrament served, and it's it's a very regimented service. And so I go in, I sit down, I go through the rote experience, and then I'm out. And I think, you know, when we look back at the early Christians, it was far more organic. There was just, this was, we naturally gathered together in the spirit of it Christ. It was table
0: fellowship in so many, in most, you know, experiences. that They were gathering in small groups, eating meals together and talking.
1: Yeah, exactly like that. And so I've noticed that that was the natural expression of their, of that Christ within them as, as they were developing their relationship with Christ. And that my my church experience has become far more institutional that I do it far more on an institutional duty basis because this is what I'm supposed to do because I'm a, I'm a member of this church. So this is what church members do. And so we go through, we do this, we go through the process, we partake of the ordinances, and then we leave. As opposed to where I'm at now is there's this organicness that's coming out where it's like, what do you do when you organically are living and trying to live according to be like Christ? You naturally gather together into a body, you know, wherever two or more are gathered, and you come together, and it's in that moment when the natural emanation of that is the sacrament and the emblems of the sacrament, what those means and what those symbolize, you begin to experience with each other. And I see this in a lot of other aspects. That's where I think the prayer for me was becoming far—there was an organic aspect to my communication with the divine that I was ignoring— consciously, because I, I didn't even have the conscious wherewithal to look to even say that there was a thing. Nobody had ever identified it for me. But then once I was able to identify it, I'm like, oh, that's what I'm doing. Then at that point, I can look at all of the, you know, what the church is doing and what, um, you know, the ordinances and, and the process of the ordinances, they've taken on a completely new life for me. And they mean something completely different to me than they ever have before. So my experience with God there has changed just because I started to look at things a little bit differently.
0: So along those lines, maybe it's a good time to kind of get specific and call out different ways that people experience God. And you and I um, have been paying attention to some of the ways that other people have indicated they experience God. You put a, a poll out on some of our groups and different people responded in different ways. And it was just interesting to see the great variation and, you know, given uh, granted this is a uh, limited data set with its own, you know, uh, makeup and whatever demographic. But nevertheless, it's it's a group of people, you know, fairly yeah. good sized group of people. You put this thing out there and it said, how do you experience God? And I mean, there was at least a dozen different answers. And if everyone was to uh, write down their own, there would probably be. 90 different answers you know in that group. So um, I think we can all relate to certain aspects of how each other experiences God, but also recognize that there's a lot of uh, individualization of that uh, process. And so uh, as you did that poll and you saw some of those answers, what were some of the common things that came out of that question?
1: Well, before I answer that, the one of the reasons why I put that poll up there was because when I taught seminary, I started to, I when I first started teaching seminary, I would ask the question, how do you feel, God? Like, how, how do you feel when God talks to you? And I would get one or two answers, but that question started falling flat. And I had my daughter come in. It was when one, one, one of my daughters came in several years ago, and I, I started to change that question because... She came in and, and it was—it's that quintessential moment that every parent goes through when you know when, when you talk about God a lot with your children. And she came in and she says, "Dad, I've never—I don't know what the spirit feels like. I've never felt God before. I don't have any feelings. I've never felt anything." And you're like, "Oh my goodness, I failed as a parent." <laughs> like, right? It's, and it's like, well, and you start to scramble in your head and in your heart, like, "Where have I failed? Where have I not imparted things? What have I left undone?" What's going on? And then all of a sudden you start praying, God, you know, this is a pretty, this seems like a pretty quintessential moment in a really important pinnacle. Let me say the right thing. Anyway, uh, that's all my pride and ego going on. God has, God had my daughter. He's always had my daughter. And, uh, and all of a sudden I was just, I was just at peace in that moment. And I started to recognize that she doesn't feel God the way that I feel God and that she actually has other things so we had a pretty long conversation and we've had several conversations since then about how she experiences god and for her it was never feelings it was I mean, my 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 daughter is a very good peacemaker in groups like when groups start to get like 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 uh start to devolve and people start to bicker and argue she's really good at getting the group to go do something else and kind of like deflecting or acknowledging and redirecting people in order to create peaceful situations and so i started to identify this and i said hey when you did that why, why did you do it that way and she's like i don't know i'm like well what what was going on and she says well i figured i felt uncomfortable with the arguing so i thought hey here's another idea so i went over there to just and i and i said where did that idea come from and she's like i i don't know I go, is that your usual go-to? And she's like, well, no, I've never wanted, I think she wanted to go play a game at one point. And she's like, well, let's go play another game. And I said, I think that's, that's God. That's God for you. It's just, it was the, the idea that came of redirecting and of, and of taking a situation. And we've had several situations since. And, but in, anyway, it was that experience where I started to t- ask my seminary class, how do you experience God? And just changing it from how do you feel to how do you experience because as, as a church, we, if, Riley, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, but it's in section nine of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's the very famous scripture about Oliver Cowdery, where, he, where Oliver Cowdery is trying to translate. He fails, and then the Lord comes to talk with him. And he says that if it's right, then it will cause your bosom shall burn within you. Otherwise, you'll get a stupor of thought. And so that what's been classified as the burning of the bosom you know what, Riley, I've never once felt that in my entire life. I I have no idea what that kind of experience is. And, and so it was really with that in mind that when I was coming into this, this Facebook group that we're in, I wanted to know how other people had experienced God because I realized that from, from the experience I had with my daughter and the experience I had with the seminary class and, and all the different perspectives of how people are experiencing that, there was a, it was actually really fascinating. There was a bunch of different ways of doing this. So I guess I'll just read it. But uh, the question was, how in general terms do you primarily experience God and the Spirit? I've noticed that most people have a go-to in how they experience God and communicate with and connect with the divine that brings revelation. So what's yours? So I included a few, but what came in some of the top answers were that, that they have strokes of creativity or ideas or scriptures or verses that are connected to energetic ideas that general bring a peace of heart and mind. And I thought that was really that's really fascinating. That there that people have that experience, that just strokes of creative, uh, creative ideas. Another one was that they have thoughts and impressions independent of feelings, so that their their revelation is not even connected to a like a general sense of feeling, but as a way of thought.
0: And that, that speaks to why maybe the students in your class had a stupor of thought when it came to answering your question. Because you were you were asking them to connect their experience with a physical sensation. Well, maybe they don't have that,
1: right? Yeah. So there there was no real connection there as far as that's concerned. Because, and I think a lot of the times we have this experience because of what's in the Doctrine and Covenants, um, in section nine. And with Oliver Cowdery when he's talking about the burning in the bosom, uh, I've never felt that way. I've never felt that burning in the bosom, and. I know people who have, yet I have experienced God, but I've never experienced God in that way. But I know people who have. And, and so that, that's a lot of the thing that got me to ask this question. Anyway, some more responses were that it's just a way of knowing that something is true that can't be easily communicated. Another answer was it was just a general sense of peace. There was another one that was a spark or an idea that brings about a new consciousness. So that kind of had to do with a lot of the first one, you know, these sparks or strokes of creative ideas or, or thoughts of being. Some people had heard a literal voice and that that literal voice had talked with them, that they have a variety of different feelings. So there's not just one particular feeling, but there's a lot of different sensations or feelings that you can feel or unexpected, unexpected senses of calm, clarity, peace. And the list goes on from there, but I just find it fascinating, Riley. There are so many ways of being able to connect with God. And this goes back to a conversation we had and something that I said a while back of just how I was taught growing up to experiment with God, just to experiment with the Spirit. If If you're experiencing God in a way that you have never heard about before and it brings peace and comfort and you can actually... If it's bringing about good fruit... Go into it deeper. You know, the, the things that which we feel from God, I think I have far too often fallen short from really pushing myself into those experiences with the divine. I don't And I don't know what that is. I don't know what that apprehension sometimes is that we feel like we're getting really close to the precipice of something. And I don't know if it's just the natural man, if it's fear, if it's just a lack of knowledge about how to proceed forward. But there have been more times in my life than I care to care to number where I feel like I'm really on the precipice of something and yet I, there's a fear there and I don't want to go forward into it. It's like this unknown world where I feel that if I go into it, I, I don't know how to explain it. but as I begin to just sit with you know I use that phrase all the time to just sit with God, those moments open up for me more often than not. And and I've learned to find a lot of joy in them.
0: So if I were to answer your, the initial question, I would probably relate it to a specific uh, experience, or I mean one of many, but in the same kind of vein, let's put it. So this last week I was down at Lake Powell. I was with my son and some of his friends, and, man, we picked the perfect long weekend to go down. We went Thursday through Sunday, and it, there could not have been better Weather and just everything about it was perfect. The skies were completely empty of clouds, so that at night, all you saw was billions of stars. The Milky Way just looked like a cloud of stars. It was so thick with stars, and so I was just in a sense of absolute awe of it all. I'm sitting on the edge of this cliff. We camped at a place called Stanton Creek, and I'm, it's a little inlet, you know, off the main channel, and. Um, so we camped kind of on the edge of that. And so you could you could sit on the edge of these cliffs overlooking your little bay, your inlet and, uh, lay back on the rocks and just look up. And it was incredible. And there was a moment just like on the first night when my kids, my, my son and his friends were just fishing in the inlet late at night, fish were jumping bass all over the place. And I'm kind of above them on some rocks. And I, I just decided to lay back and rest my head on my half-drink water bottle, which was kind of soft. And uh, I'm looking up at these stars, and it just hit me like a wave all at once how um, significant and insignificant we are at the same time. It, and it was just such overwhelming beauty. And so that, coupled with those feelings, just brought me to tears. And it was I mean, I'm glad my son wasn't right next to me. It's like, what are you crying about dad? Don't be a weirdo. <laughs> uh, but it just hit me that way. And it was so powerful. And I knew that that was, uh, an experience with the divine and I loved it, uh, man. It just filled me up. It was so awesome. And so later on that night, we have a campfire and, uh, the boys are just sitting around and as the fire burns down into just embers and it gets a little dark and they're looking up and they're seeing all these stars and they're, they're struck with awe. And we go into this conversation about just the immensity of the universe and God's creation and all this. And, um, and you know, we got into that same conversation about how insignificant we are. And uh, it opened up a whole avenue of conversation that went, you know, a solid half hour just talking about God's creations. And I don't know that that would have been possible without the physical uh, surroundings, the environment that we were in. It created that opportunity to experience the divine, to experience God. And so when I experience God, more often than not, it's in nature because I'm in the creation. And, you know, if there's anything that we learn from reading ancient um, religious tradition stories, they all begin in, co- in cosmogony, all of them. They begin with creation and nature and the first humans and the first animals and, you know, all that stuff. It begins in creation. And so that's, for me, that's where I experience God. And now some people have that Section 9 experience of a burning in the bosom. I don't have that physical sensation so much. For me, it's more processing it in my mind as I'm seeing it. Um, But what we're trying to do here is kind of validate all the different ways in which people experience God and not necessarily give people a roadmap per se, although, you know, there are methods to doing that, but just pointing out that there's lots of ways uh, to experience God and uh, many Physical and non-physical effects that result from it.
1: So, I'm interested to get your your thoughts on this, Riley. Because as as we've been talking, and as uh, as I've gone over some of my own experiences, if I'm honest with myself, I have to recognize that there are large chunks of my life where I have not experienced God, or that I've sought for God. I've sought for those experiences. And they've never come that I've, I've never, you know, those moments when you, you wonder, I've never had a supernatural experience. I've never had, and I've had never had these moments where God has just come and you know, it's God, or it's happened in such a way that can be rationalized as something else. Um, I, you know, I, I take, uh, if I drink caffeine and I kind of get the caffeine, the euphoria from caffeine from time to time, um, how do I know the spirit is not there or some kind of drug-induced euphoria from some kind of external substance? How do I know that my general sense of peace and well-being is is from God and not from anything else?
0: Well, and to be really blasphemous, how do we know that that stuff is off the table? Yeah. Well, I I, I agree. I mean, we're talking methods, right? That's another method that... that many cultures have used and i'm not making a judgment one way or another all i'm saying is you know to take it off the table is is a very controlling way to determine for another person how they go about seeking and experiencing god
1: yeah so what would you say what would you say to those people who are struggling or i don't know if they've just never had those experiences for or identified. Because as I said, for myself, there have been entire chunks and years that have gone by when I have, I I, I said it before, where I said I've lost, there was a huge period of my life where I never lost my faith per se, but when I very much lost my hope in life. And while I might feel from time to time that I might have an answer here and answer there, to really say that I can connect with the divine where I can feel God's love you know, years, years and years and years, I might have a spiritual experience or pray and, and like, like have a, like a prompting here and there. And I'm like, okay, well that might be a prompting or not. And I can attribute that to God, but to actually experience the love of God, um, to those who are actively seeking for it and they can't find it. How would you address that?
0: I think that's like such a relatable experience. Because it, uh, you said it earlier, if I'm honest with myself, well, heck, if any of us are honest with ourselves, we've had that um, that dead air, you know. And and maybe it's by design. Maybe it's lack of uh, trying for some. I mean, but as you mentioned, you've had it even when you felt like you were seeking for it, where, where you just didn't have the experience. And I think that that is uh, frustrating and, you know. Demotivating and for people who actively consider themselves active and faithful, it's uh, really demoralizing to not have um, that experience to latch on to. I I think a lot of times we, um, in the process of reaching for some end goal, we miss out on the process. And so we we pass over the joy that is in the journey for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that we expect and one of the things about a contemplative life and again i'm not like some master that's years and years into this i've uh, this is just a couple of years and i'm at the front end but having seen having experienced some of the fruits of the contemplative life it's it's found almost as much in the process as any end result or phenomenon or you know it's not the end goal that is important it's really uh the journey and that's why it's a daily practice it's something that has to be renewed daily we talked yesterday or not yesterday last podcast about uh the rebirth the um being born again and how that how important it is to to be born again daily um that doesn't mean we have to have uh profound experiences with the divine daily but we're participants in the rebirth. We're participants in being born again on a daily basis. And a day is just a an arbitrary marker of time, but it does have a beginning. It does have an end. It's measurable. It gives us time to, you know, work things out in, in a period of, you know, 16 hours or whatever it is that we're awake. And at the end of it, there's a benediction and, and we can call to remembrance our actions of the day and say, well, this was good. This was bad. And that's a form of repentance, right? We turn towards the bad or towards the good and away from the bad. So um, what I'm getting at here is that the process of, of contemplation is uh, beneficial by itself, all by itself. Um, just opening your eyes to awareness of what's going on around us, being observant, a lot of times by itself will reveal the reality of God, the existence of God, that that there's an involvement in your life and that God is within. Um, We get very distracted and sidetracked by the things that are coming up on us, the future, and we get very disheartened and discouraged about things that we did wrong, the past, that we can't change, we have no control over. And stoically, we should look at this and say, what do we have control over? what we're doing in the present right now. Well, can I find a space of stillness and emptiness right now for God to fill? Ten seconds? Sure. I can close my eyes and breathe three deep breaths. Fifteen seconds, whatever it is. And in those moments of stillness, um, there's a lot of revelation that can take place in those. That's just a method um, of one of many, but I, I think it's so much easier to hear and feel when you've removed distractions and you've found some moment of stillness. I, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode that the quote by Yogananda that says, stillness is the altar of the spirit. It's one of my absolute favorite quotes. Stillness is the altar of the spirit. Think through that. We're putting on the altar. All the things that might distract us, and we're gonna we're gonna sit in stillness. And when we do, the spirit meets us at the altar. So that's one method of many. But I, I think a lot of times we we forego or overlook the process itself for the end result that we expect when it's right there in front of us.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, that end result is is very much an expectation. It's uh, it, we think it should. We're taught that it's supposed to look a certain way. It's supposed to feel a certain way. That if you do X, Y, and Z, then you're going to have this. If you pray hard enough and sincere enough, you're going to know this is absolutely true. And so when you do, if that falls flat for you, then it's like, well, what gives? Am, what, did am I, I do wrong? what did I do wrong? And man, if I can impress upon anyone in those moments, I wish there would have been someone in my life who would have been able to reach out to me in a way of being able to just say what you're going through is not a consequence of you doing something wrong. You are already worthy. Because in those moments when you don't feel like there's that God is there, you don't feel like you're really accessible, even though you're trying, you begin to look inward of like there must be something wrong with me that I'm I am sinning or I'm doing something wrong, and then you start and then all of a sudden it starts this downward spiral. And, and I, I self-evaluate a lot and I, cause I, I, knowing I can't, like you said, the stoic way of doing things, I was like, I can't control the outer world. I've only can control what's inside myself. And so that's what I start to analyze. But there have been times when I've lost all this hope and my hope was my motivation for doing things. And it's like, I entered these, this sphere of life where I just lost my motivation for being able to get up and to do all this all this stuff. And in terms, a lot of the times there's depression and I know in depression is its own realistic thing. That's not, that's not, and I don't want to say that I was going through that. I don't want to, I don't want to take that experience of how people go through that because that's a very real thing. That's not what I was going through. Mine was far more, um, in a different category. But when I, uh, but when I actually sat down and I started to mentally take away And another word for it, it's been called deconstruction. When I've deconstructed all the narratives and the stories of expectations on who and what I am and what I'm supposed to experience and how I am supposed to be, man, that freed me up in so many ways because I started to realize that I was not in a place to just be able to sit with God because I was trying to proactively push myself into a story that was just a a story that i of my culture that i was in and so i had to like back away from that story a little bit take away the expectations and then just sit with god and let whatever was going to happen happen and if nothing happened nothing happened but i was going to take that moment to be still and let nothing happen and over time just allowing nothing to happen was more powerful than in all the trying of some trying to make something happen, and th- that's a weird place to be in, right?ly like, To be able to sit and be okay with nothing happening when all I want is for something to happen.
0: Yeah. So you got to divorce your expectations from the reality of what you're experiencing. Yeah. And the and the reality of of who what God is. I mean, again, it's I, we keep coming back to Meister Eckhart in this one idea of emptying out our conceptions and prejudices and all these ideas we have about who and what God is, how how He acts, how He manifests Himself to us. And, and when we do that, it, it not only is liberating for us personally, we feel no pressure at that point, but it allows God the His own agency. Instead of us uh, imposing upon Him the constraint of how he's going to reveal himself to us. We free him up to reveal himself however he wants to us. Because at the end of the day, we, we still own ourselves. Uh, we, if, if we say we don't want you in our life, he's not going to come. If we completely reject how he wants to manifest himself to us, we won't experience that. And so, by uh, deconstructing or delimiting uh, what is possible, it opens things up. And, and like you said, it's all about how we interpret it. Really, I mean, all of a sudden, stillness, rather than being an and uh, absence of God, becomes a place where God is. Wow, it's like the exact opposite, you know. So, it's a matter of interpretation as much as anything. But we have to release our conceptions of who God is how he acts, how he chooses to manifest himself to us.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it, it allows God to be what God is. You know, President Benson has this statement that's quoted a lot of times where he says that God will make more of us than we can make more of ourselves. And through my life, I've interpreted that as living according to the commandments as opposed to the way the world does things will make me a better person, that I'll be different than the world, and that's better than the world because. God says so. It's kind of a weird way of, of looking at it. But the way I've looked, I've started to approach it now is that when I let go of everything that I think is best for me and surrendering my identity and all of those things, it just allows this empty space where God is present. And if I just allow that space to be whatever it's going to be, that's when I begin to say, all right, now what was that experience? And it allows me to be able to tap into God in a new way. And so I think, and as I said, it had to start with me being okay with a nothing and me literally being okay with nothingness because my expectations were rooted in this egoistic of what I, of what I think it should have been that I was not allowing God to be able to present what was there. Um, And so it just became a completely different experience for me.
0: So, you know, this is Latter Day Contemplation, and, and the main methodology, if there is one, that we try to open up for people, is a contemplative life, and and so kind of to if there is any direction to be given, and we're not instructors, um, I guess the the arrow would be pointed in that direction, though, right? It, it's it's to open up something that for most people within the church has been. Rather closed off just by lack of experience or exposure. You know, there's, there's other religions or faith traditions or whatever that have more exposure to this. So it's a bigger part of how they practice. But for us, it's just, it hasn't been a big part of it. And whether that's out of ignorance or whether that's, you know, institutional bias of one method over another, whatever it is, opening that up to, to more people is a way for them to you know, maybe climb out of their discouragement with how they've not experienced God. Well, here's another way. So as we're, as we're talking about uh, contemplation and that, well, the contemplative life is like big picture, not just contemplation by itself, but the whole, the kind of the whole genre of uh, contemplative uh, spirituality, various methods reveal themselves. And, you know, we talked about Lectio Divina in previous episodes, that's really an amalgamation of several different ways of approaching it, um, beginning with stillness, you know, and becoming still, and then introducing the Word of God through the scriptures, introducing meditation and prayer, contemplation, action. Um, and so those are all good. Some other methods we've talked about centering prayer. Um, have you looked into that much, uh, Shiloh, centering prayer? I know you've read about it somewhat.
1: I have read about it a little bit. It, I'm I am not well enough versed on it to be able to really expound on it. But it is it's my it's like my next field of like coming into it. I've got like three or four books on my nightstand that I'm coming into. My wife has read quite a bit, and we've talked, so I'm, I can talk a little bit about it. But I just I'm I'm absolutely fascinated at establishing and kind of experiencing what that will be.
0: Okay, so part of, one of the aspects that you see repeated over and over in contemplative. Traditions is an invitation uh to God that is extended by stillness, and that's that's part of meditation that's part of active contemplation centering prayer um communion with God in nature again, like my description of sitting on a cliffside and laying back in stillness and just observing the the stars above that's a moment of stillness that acts as an invitation um to God, to, uh, to commune with him. And, and so almost that's a common thread that you can draw amongst all those various methodologies or traditions is, is stillness. Stillness is a big aspect of it. And so if there's any place to start for anyone who's just kind of getting into this, um, or is curious, maybe the, the very, very beginning is approaching a place of stillness By finding silence, uh, eliminating distractions, eliminating uh, competing energies, uh, noises, electricity, electronics. Um, Other people can be a distraction or they can be actually an attunement um, to stillness if done right. But um, finding places of stillness, silence are, I think that's a great jumping off point to. Uh, this contemplative tradition and, and experiencing God in in a new way. Um, another step that is, once you've started to become more accustomed and um, comfortable with being still, which is a hard thing to do, introducing into the stillness a thought that you've had. And that thought can come via scripture. It can come from your own mind. It can come from your daily experience. But opening up the stillness to an idea and seeing what revelation you can receive maybe as it relates to that idea. Now, again, I talked about earlier how that can become somewhat of a border that you're drawing around the experience and perhaps limit you. But it can also be something that focuses you. So it can go either way. But that traditionally, at least on the Eastern Traditions is is referred to as a mantra. And that mantra can be something that is verbally repeated a few times to get you kind of in the mood of it or something that you just kind of focus on within your mind or your heart. And that can be uh, a great tool for helping to, again, focus in on some aspect of your life that is, uh, that you're being drawn to, whether it's something you need, something you don't know you need, you know, the, the, the unknown, known, the known unknowns, um, for instance. So um, yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Um, you can ask the questions that might naturally come from that for someone coming from more of an Orthodox tradition, such as where does obedience fit in this? Where does traditional prayer fit into this? And I think there's a place. Um, depending on who you are, what your station is, and, and what you're comfortable with, I'm not going to tell anyone that they're they're doing it wrong if if their intention is to uh, draw near unto God, I don't think there's a way to do that wrong um, if the intention is right if the if the intent is pure as the scriptures talk about and so I would I would encourage um, at least from my perspective and what we're trying to accomplish in this podcast specifically in contemplation, I would encourage, uh, open up moments of silence and quiet, intentional focus. So that that would be where I would would aim.
1: Yeah, if I was going to say one thing that I wanted to try to make this whole conversation is, it's what you identified with. It's almost as if it's giving permission isn't the right word, but it's recognizing that there are so many different ways of experiencing God, and to validate all the different ways that we do. And whatever that is for us, just to give to give you encouragement to keep on moving forward in that. And if you feel stuck, man, really, I love a lot of the, the, everything that you said there. I think that's really powerful. I, I've noticed that my scripture study about a year ago changed. And I do it intermittently. It's not like I do it all the time. But... I usually read my scriptures focusing on a particular idea. So for instance, I would, I would, you know, pick the book of Mormon. I'd get like a new copy of the book of Mormon and I would read it through with a particular idea in mind. And then that idea comes from the pages, like everywhere. Like if I want to study for faith, I'm going to go find all the stories of faith. And if you're reading with an intentionality for a particular thing, it's going to come out. But what was fascinating is to read the scriptures with having no intentionality but to simply read them and then kind of clear my mind but try to use them as as almost like a stimulus to being able to charge up my my uh my battery as it were to then just sit in stillness and quiet and allow whatever is going to come to come
0: yeah that's that's really pure revelation is when you take away the expectation so what you're talking about initially is Okay, I'm going to read this with an intentionality that I'm going to see Christ in every page. Um, and so, you know, one of the common ways that we've heard or or been talked about uh, approaching the scriptures is to highlight every scripture that references the Savior. And I think even President Nelson talked about doing that one time as he read through the Book of Mormon. I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a wonderful intentionality to see Christ throughout the scriptures. I think it's awesome. Um, and if you do that, as you said, you, you'll you accomplish exactly what you're setting out to do. Your intention will be validated. You'll see Christ in every page of the scriptures if you look for him. Likewise, if, if you have the intentionality to see faith or, or obedience or any other number of virtues within the scriptures, and you have the intentionality to identify them, highlight them, focus in on them, you will see exactly what you want to see in the scriptures. Now, the the complete opposite side of the pendulum if it were to swing the other way is to approach the scriptures in poverty in emptiness with no expectations except uh revelation and and allowing that to flow into you without your preconceived notion of what you will see or receive as you open up the pages of the scripture and and in that sense um that whole urim and thummim discussion you had earlier takes on a whole new meaning as well the scriptures become that for you um And and that's when I do my Lectio Divina stuff and I introduce my scripture study uh, into it near the beginning after being kind of in my moment of stillness and calm, I like to approach it that way. Uh, Rather than uh, imposing my um, intention necessarily on the scriptures, I like to let the scriptures reveal themselves to me. And whatever it is comes of that – it's interesting to go down that that road, um to fall down that rabbit hole wherever it takes me and, and let let the spirit reveal new things to me. And um that's generally how I like to do it. Now there are times when I'll go to a specific story in the in the scriptures, wanting to have fresh eyes on that story. Again, not approaching it with any preconceived notion about what the story means or anything like that, but going to a specific story nonetheless you know, it might be the story of Noah or or Jonah or Job. Um, you know, or or going to the New Testament, it, it might be you know some symbolic reference in in Revelations, um, or or a story of the life of Christ. You know, Garden of Gethsemane and Transfiguration, or something like that. And going to those stories with not any necessarily not necessarily having any um, preconceived notion about what I'll receive, but. But going to those stories and letting those stories reveal themselves to me in the reading, in the meditation and prayer. Um, so, again, it's just different approaches and they're all valid. There's there's different ways to do it. But what we want to do ultimately, what we want for everyone, our deepest hope and wish in this is that people will have that experience with the divine. That they will be able to um, sit with God in new ways and and be encouraged by that and have that grow their faith. Because that's what it's done for us.
1: That's exactly right. At the end of the day, this is supposed to be a conversation where these are our experiences. If someone else has had completely different experiences, that's awesome. There's no one way to do this. And we're excited to be able to explore. So if any of you have had any kind of different experiences that you feel like sharing, we'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to get to, to hear something back from you about how God has impacted your life and how that revelation flows within you. You know, how you come to God, and then how it flows afterwards. You know, that experience, kind of what you were talking about at the beginning, Riley, between those those two parts of that conversation. Because the preparation period, or the the emptying out period, or however you approach God, a lot of the times affects what the back end is going to look like.
0: Yeah, the process and methodology. And a lot of times there is no back end. Sometimes the process is is how you experience God. It's in the process itself. Yes. Well, it's been a good uh, discussion, Shiloh. I think um, it, it's opened up for me different ideas and approaches to experiencing God, just reading through the responses that we got from your question and talking through it with you and others as I've prepared for this. So it's been good for me to uh, expand expand upon what's available for us to commune with God. And it's a much bigger then maybe we're limiting ourselves to. So I'm excited to employ some of the new techniques or new ways to uh, approach God. And I hope to have new uh, revelations and experiences with God that will continue to nurture my faith. And we, that's our hope for all our listeners as well. So we, we thank you for listening and, and we look forward to doing the next one and uh, hope you'll join us when we do that. Thanks for being here. My name is Riley Risto. Shiloh, you got any last thoughts? Nope, that's it. I'm
1: Shiloh Logan, and thanks for
0: listening. Thank you. Have a good one.